Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to a very, very special show. Very lucky to have guests joining us live from the United States. You've had to get up very, very early uh, over the Atlantic. We're talking today about the fallout of the Kyle Rittenhouse Verdict. Now, as many of you will know, on Friday, Carl Rittenhouse was found not guilty by a nearly all-white jury on five counts. That included, of course, homicide and reckless endangerment. Now, those killings took place last August during unrest in Wisconsin, in which Rittenhouse, who took it upon himself to cross the border from where he's from in Illinois, to patrol the streets after protests over the police shooting uh, of Jacob Blake. Uh, He shot dead two men with an AR-15 style uh, rifle. Now, this was the moment when the verdict was announced. We, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fifth count of the information, Gage Grosskreutz, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. Members. Now, of course, there's lots of issues to talk about about here and for many of course outside the united states the just as a basic point u.s gun laws continue to be a source of huge uh bafflement um but the obviously another very basic question how would the american justice system have treated a black man a young black man in comparable circumstances the political implications can best be summed up by who exactly is most loudly celebrating the verdict. Now, far-right groups across the United States are jubilant. They are extremely triumphant. They're proud boys. Many of you will know, of course, that far-right extremist group over in the United States, calling for the stacking up of bodies like Cordwood after the Rittenhouse verdict. Now, during the trial itself, Republican senators cheered uh, Rittenhouse on and indeed even offered to employ him. We the jury find uh, in fact, sorry, bear, bear with us. Here we Thank go. you for your advocacy for Kyle Rittenhouse. He is not guilty. He deserves a not guilty verdict. And I sure hope he gets it because you know what? Kyle Rittenhouse would probably make a pretty good congressional intern. We may reach out to him and uh, see if he'd be interested in helping the country uh, in, in additional ways. Now, unsurprisingly, Donald Trump has joined those celebrating the verdict. I think that it was a great decision. I was surprised it had to go this far. Somebody should have ended it earlier. And frankly, the case should have never been brought. It was prosecutorial misconduct, in my opinion. And there's plenty of it going on in this country right now. That was disgraceful. Now, Joe Biden's public statement uh, was, I suppose, unsurprising. Let's just hear what he said. I stand by what the jury has concluded. The jury system works and we have to abide by it. In a subsequent statement, though, he said, while the verdict in uh, Kinshosa will leave many Americans feeling angry and concerned, myself included, we must acknowledge that the jury has spoken. So I suppose carefully treading a a certain line there. We'll talk about that uh, later. Now, there's been protests across the United States following the verdict, including in Brooklyn, New York. The former uh, football quarterback and civil rights activist Colin uh, Kaepernick said, we just witnessed a system built on white supremacy validate the terroristic acts of a white supremacist. This only further validates the need to abolish our current system. White supremacy cannot be formed. Now, as I said, we've got four brilliant guests who are going to be talking over the verdict and the implications, just quickly as ever. Bit of housekeeping. Uh, do uh, If you're watching live, do click through on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe so you get more videos. 
Uh, for those of us supporting us on Patreon, you make all of this possible, including supporting the team, of course, and also all the documentaries that we make. Now, I'll just we've just done a documentary, uh, which again was passing the mic to working class people who are normally erased from the conversation. This was about how property developers are waging war on working class communities. Uh, let's see a little clip from the documentary which we made because of yours. Working class residents feel consigned to the shadows in the most literal sense. This is like living in concrete jungle. In the nine years that I lived here, since the properties, new properties have been built, it's taken sunlight away from us. Yeah, it's, um, it's covered all the trees, it's covered all the skylight. Now, you make all that possible on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84 with a team on union wages. We've got lots of documentaries, of course, we've made, Tory conference, Labour conference, but documentaries across the country giving a voice to people who are otherwise not represented. And we've got lots of documentaries to come and you make that possible. You can also support us using Super Chat on YouTube so you can ask questions to the guests. And I will um, put those questions to the guests, but also thank you all individually um, at the end. Do support us on the podcast as well. Many of you listen on the podcast, so subscribe to that as well. Well, that's quite enough for me. I'm now going to bring in our first two fantastic guests, uh, Cynthia, a uh, Dr. Cynthia Miller-Idris, uh, columnist at MN and MSNBC, writes at many publications, and the director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab. Good, in your case, morning. It's very early over there. Good morning to you. Good morning. And I'm also going to bring in another fantastic guest, uh, Wajahat Ali, who is the columnist, a columnist at the Daily Beast. Again, guests have many hats here. Senior fellow at the Western State Centre, now, his book, Go Back to Where You Came From, comes out in January 2022. So please do pre-order a copy because it looks like an absolutely critical book. Hello to you. Wajahat. Hey, Esther. Thanks so much for inviting us. Great to be on today. It's a great honor to have you. And as I said, you are both up very early. So we on a, on a, on a Sunday, so we really appreciate that. I'm just going to flash up a, uh, well, actually put this to you, actually, the in terms of the, the response, I suppose, that we've seen so far. Um, now, in your article, just start with an article which Wajah ha has uh, has written, uh, which was uh, about this, obviously, this this terrible, uh, the, the, the verdict and the aftermath. The Cal Rittenhouse verdict re-establishes a dangerous precedent and sends a terrifying warning to the rest of us. Now, you write in it, the one positive, uh, you're being sardonic here, I think, the, from the Rittenhouse verdict is that a loud conservative minority in this country, backed by its judges, elected officials and gun industries, is telling us black, brown and Muslim men that we too can show up to a heated protest with an AR-15, shoot three people, claim self-defence, and we will now be praised for standing our ground. It has nothing to do with the race. Awesome. So, yeah, just flesh that out. What, 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 you know, what are you saying there and what, what does this represent? Well, first of all, it's good to be a white murderer in America. That's what the, uh, the Kelly Rittenhouse verdict is telling us. And for some people, they want to make white supremacy great again. And I believe we're witnessing the death rattle of white supremacy, which has transformed into a death march, not just in America, but in Europe as well. And I was saying that tongue in cheek facetiously because I know, and you know, Owen, that if a black and brown man was to, oh, I don't know, take an AR-15 and go to a Proud Boys rally where they openly advocate violence and assault people and then just lie and say that we're a medic and they just calmly walk around uh, and carry a gun illegally across state lines or uh, obtain the gun illegally and then shoot three people, killing two, not only would not, we would not be acquitted, we would be chalk lines. We would not have leave that place, right? Kyle Rittenhouse was uh, drove there, acquired the AR-15, walked the streets, shot and killed three people. The police officers did nothing. And then later on, the police officers congratulated him. He was acquitted. And not only was he acquitted, there's a documentary about him out tomorrow on Tucker Carlson's show and Fox News. And we had several congressmen, so far three congressmen, who have offered him uh, internships. So I don't think I would be offered an internship. I don't think I would be acquitted. I don't think I would be alive we would be dead just like or we'd be paralyzed like jacob blake who was shot in the back by a white cop and the white cop was acquitted that's where there's a double standard in this country and sometimes you have to use that type of dark humor and, and tongue-in-cheek examples to illustrate the insidious effect of white supremacy where there is a different legal system a different media framing a different uh, empathy uh, uh framework for when there is a white killer who becomes an innocent 
infantilized victim like Kyle Rittenhouse. And God forbid, if there was a black or brown man in that same place, what would have happened to him? What type of demonization would have happened? We all know. So, Cynthia, I mean, a lot of people on the right have argued, look, this is a 17-year-old, this in, in a very an impossible situation. What would you have done in this situation? And I suppose one of the, one of the questions which is always erased from this conversation is, what was he doing there in the first place? So do you want to talk about this in terms of, because the, the self-defense argument is what is being heavily focused upon. So do you want to respond to that and that question, which is erased from that conversation? Why was he there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, um, and thanks for having me. I mean, I'm really glad to be here and, and to be able to have this conversation. But, uh, you know, I think when you get to the, 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 the legal decision about whether something is self-defense in any given moment, I mean, I absolutely agree that this never would have been the outcome we'd see if this was a black or brown person or black or brown man in that situation. But for me, the bigger, the bigger frame is like, why are we not having the conversation or why, you know, what will it take for us to have the conversation about why he was there in the first place? So it's, it's illegal in Wisconsin to take on, to gather up with others and take on peacekeeping or law enforcement functions. Paramilitary activity is not permitted, is not legal. Um, so all of these calls to be vigilante, you know, vigilante activism or engage in kind of um, protection of the community or, or take your country back in this way are not permitted. I mean, the, the laws do vary, but in the Wisconsin law, in this case, it's not allowed. And so I think we have to um, really look into like the, the, this broader logic and, and propaganda actually around um, protecting communities and taking up arms yourself, because that kind of vigilantism is incredibly dangerous and, and valorizing that the way this verdict does um, really sets a precedent for just open season, I think, and uh, on on anybody who's dissatisfied with what's going on in their community can 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 go take up arms and and try to and try to change the outcome. I mean, it was it, it was interesting actually in terms of again some of the responses to this because some have suggested that actually this was mi this was misportrayed by the American media because many were under the illusion that the victims were black. This isn't true, though, actually. No, I mean, this has been widely circulated. No major U.S. media outlets reported that the victims were themselves black. But th this itself has been used. I mean, I'm interested your thoughts on this, Roger, in terms yeah. of the fact, obviously, these were white people shot. And this, I suppose, some would say it's kind of gaslighting, but people are saying, well, actually, look, this was, Rittenhouse was defending businesses, some about black people from these whites, uh, arsonists and so on. I mean, what, what in terms of what you would say in terms of the fact that these were white victims at a protest over the over the police shooting of a black man, what's the significance of that? What does that tell us? Yeah, Glenn Greenwald never misses an opportunity to defend white nationalism. I'm sure he'll end up on Tucker Carlson's uh, Fox News, which does literally white nationalist propaganda uh, to promote this narrative. Look, this goes to show you that your white skin even won't protect you from what is what I call now a radicalized, weaponized death cult, the modern GOP. Radicalized because they believe in conspiracy theories such as the deep state and QAnon, where anyone who disagrees with them is literally a Satan-worshipping uh, member that uh, of an international cabal that has the mark of the beast and is trying to kill children. And so what they're saying right now, if you're looking at social media, is that anyone who belongs to the deep state or QAnon and is not part of their group uh, is a leftist scum and had it coming. And we've seen yeah. also an American past, you know, we laugh about it, but that's what they believe. I'm not even making this up, right? Uh, the QAnon and deep state conspiracy is now a national security threat in America. And a majority of Republicans believe that the election that Joe Biden won was stolen from them. So there's perpetual victimhood on their side and everybody else, myself, Cynthia, yourself, is the aggressor that is trying to take away their freedom. It doesn't matter about your skin tone. What we've seen in American history is that when white allies try to help black and brown folks, such as when it came to desegregation, they were seen as race traitors and they were also assaulted and killed. So for white folks paying attention right now, it just goes to show you that it's not just black and brown folks, it's white allies who come to this BLM protest and rally, right? They too are seen as a target. They're seen as race traitors. They're seen as members of the deep state. They're seen as members who are trying to take away the America that these good old boys want. And that these good old boys will take their guns and stand their grounds and commit violence if they have to, because they're going to take this country back. And according to a poll, a significant minority, about 20 to 30 percent of Republicans 
believe that violence can be justified. So if you're white and paying attention to this right now, your white skin will not protect you because you are also seen as the enemy. But let's not kid ourselves. It is fundamentally a, a extension of white supremacy and white supremacist uh, terror and uh, an expression of white supremacist power. That this is our country. And if you're going to betray the white race and join those blacks and browns, you have it coming. I mean, Cynthia, d- just building on from that, just in terms of the point just made by Roger Hat, there's a just a clip here, which was Jason Johnson, who's an American commentator, who made a very similar point. I just want to see ba- ba- responding to that by Roger Hat and also what he said. As Kyle well. Rittenhouse killed two white men protesting on behalf of black lives and got away with it. That's the single most important thing to understand about today's ruling. By allowing him to go free and potentially commit other crimes, this jury sent the final and loudest warning to white America about the dangerous rise of white nationalist terror in this country, one I suspect will be ignored by most thought leaders, politicians, and the press. Kyle Rittenhouse was able to kill Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber and face no consequences because those men were race traitors, white men who had the audacity to protest that police shot Jacob Blake a black man in the back seven times in his own car. They stood against the core conceit of white supremacy, that straight white men have dominion over everything, especially black bodies. And when you stand against that position, you can be subjected to the same violence used against Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, and yes, George Floyd. What's your take on that, Cynthia, in terms of what both Roger Hart and Benjamin said there? Yeah, well, it's absolutely true empirically. I mean, when we when you hear former white supremacists um, talk about who their who their biggest targets are, um, right in that mix are race traders, right? So they, you know, that is absolutely that 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 story about white people also being potentially targets of white supremacist violence is. Um, there's no question that that's true. I'm not, I don't know that I would say they're the biggest target. I mean, I don't want to victim, you know, to, you know, make arguments about who's a victim or not, but it's, there's no protective um, veneer of, you know, of skin color once you're, once you're acting as an ally in, in those kinds of situations. But I think, you know, part of what we're also seeing here that, that um, is so disturbing on so many levels is obviously this verdict is being celebrated um you know, like crazy and the fringes, right? And we've we've seen that the the the, the jubilant um, celebration of the verdict by white supremacists on every manner of of uh, you know um, encrypted apps and and chat rooms, etc. But it's also being celebrated in the mainstream Republican yeah. and conservative um, in the GOP, and that's you know for for and with different language, but all around this idea of taking your country back, of of uh, being a patriot, of celebrating. And there's such a sense of entitlement across that language um, that we know is really, really core to the mobilization of violence. When people feel like they're losing something, but that they're entitled to that thing, whether that's a white country or second amendment rights or an election that you think was stolen for you, that's such a key dynamic that precedes violence. And so I think what we're seeing here is the willingness to use violence the moral disengagement, I mean, the language around the other being evil, which is also really spiked. Um, and then this language around patriotic defense and taking your country back being used in conjunction with a, with a case like this that's celebrating um, just vigilantism un, you know, unraveled. And so I think we're, it's a really dangerous precedent. It's a really dangerous moment. And I think we will look back at this moment and, and think of it as a turning point, much like January 6th was a turning point or other kinds of moments like this. I mean, Wajah, in terms of uh, the Republican, mainstream Republican response to this, I mean, obviously we'll see, uh, we've seen Republican senators offer him during the trial internships and so on. Uh, He's going to have the big Tucker Carlson interview on Fox News. So he's been built up as this big hero of the mainstream Mm. right. I mean, I think when we say the far right, we're talking the, I mean, it's mainstream. No, it's mainstream. The, 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 the kind of border between far-right and centre-right has imploded. We already knew that. But tell us about that and what this says about the Republican Party and where it's headed. 
Yeah, so I like I said, I believe the modern Republican Party and conservative movement in America is a radicalized, weaponized death cult. Radicalized because of disinformation and the right-wing media infrastructure that has pummeled them with lies and conspiracy theories. The big lie that Joe Biden lost the election and Trump won, that there's a deep state headed by nefarious Jews who are using black and brown folks and Muslims to weaken and replace the white race. Uh, the fact that they're now weaponized, as you saw in the January 6th violent insurrection with Kyle Rittenhouse, with Mark McCloskey. Remember him, the, the suburban couple in the pink shirt that took out the guns against the peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters uh, a couple of years ago? Well, that guy's running for Republican Senate. Uh, the fact that uh, there is a trial in Georgia right now, I don't know if your listeners know about the killing of Ahmed Arbery, who was killed because he was jogging while black in his neighborhood and a death cult because during a pandemic, which has killed over 5 million people and 800,000 Americans, these people are against vaccines and against, against mask mandates, but they're also pro-life. Somehow make that work, right? And so this is what we're dealing with. And there was a V-Dem study that I know, I'm sure you know of, uh, Owen, where they looked at all the conservative parties all across the world. And they said that the modern Republican Party in America is now a far-right party, further right than Vox in Spain, further right than the National Rally. And the Republican Party in America, I think, is the only conservative movement which doesn't believe in climate change. So you got nationalist conservative movements all across Europe, but they're like, you know what? We might be hella racist and violent, but at least we believe in climate change. Not so in America, because Donald Trump, the chosen one, said that I think climate change is a hoax created by China. So that's where we are. And it's dangerous because one of the congressmen that Cynthia was talking about, Madison Cawthorn, right, the Republican mainstreaming of this, he literally looked at the, uh, the camera, told his supporters, be armed and be dangerous. Can you imagine, Owen, if you and you like me get a lot of interesting emails every day or the squad or AOC or Ilhan Omer literally looked at the camera and told uh, our fans or our followers uh, or voters, be armed and be dangerous. What would be the media press coverage of that if a leftist said that? And yet Madison Cawthorn, a Republican congressman, celebrated the, <laughs> the, the quit of Kyle House, the murder of three people and said, be armed and be dangerous. So this is where we're at. And I think they're going to get worse. I think they're going to get more radicalized. I think, uh, like I said before, this is the death rattle of white supremacy. And unfortunately, we're living in a, in a double standard ecosystem that, that creates this both sides false equivalents where, oh, my God, the wokeness. But there you have a January 6th violent insurrection and people celebrating a murder. And how does a democracy survive? Alone? Pray for us in America. Well, we've got our own problems here. But uh, Cynthia, um I mean, in terms of that point I made about the demarcation, the border between what you could call centre-right of a traditional type and far-right. I mean, you know, another example was Hungary, where Fidesz, which was a former member of the Liberal International, um, radicalised in power and is, by all intents and purposes, a far-right power. It uses anti-Semitism. It uses vicious anti-Muslim, anti-migrant um, rhetoric and policies and, and has attacked and hollowed out civil society and opposition by various nefarious means. I mean, what's with the Republican Party, what does this tell us about the Republican Party's ideology, Cynthia? Well, I think what we've been seeing over the last four or five years, um, as Wadrat just said, is is uh, the mainstreaming of extreme ideas, things moving from the fringes into the mainstream and then being repeated by people who are supposed to be historically a source for legitimate information for the public. So when you have elected officials, you know, at least refusing to condemn, <clears throat> at least refusing to condemn conspiracy theories, but sometimes just outright um, confirming them, right? Talking about who's funding a migrant caravan, talking about uh, using racist and anti-Muslim language, creating policies, border control policies that are that reinforce Islamophobia and other kinds of anti-immigrant language, um, and really just using dehumanizing language in general, right? So, so that is just these things that used to live in the dark spaces of that had to be a destination for people to seek out online are now right in front of them, mainstream, right on their regular news channel, right on their hearing coming from the, the, the voices of their elected officials. And so that is, it's a real turning point in terms of how extreme ideas get reinforced and get carried in with legitimacy into the mainstream. So I think, I think that's what we're seeing. And when we're seeing that with the valorization of violence, um, you know, with the, with the sort of call to arms, the call to protect yourself that, that we're seeing both from elected officials and from fringe forum, you know, online, that that's just a, it's an incredibly dangerous space. So I totally agree that I think we're in, um, you know, what keeps me up at night, as I was telling you by email, Owen, I mean, I'm just, 
it's uh, it's it, we're in scary times here, and, mm. I, and I try generally not to be too alarmist, but this is a really frightening moment. I mean, building well, I, on that. Sorry, get on watch out. Yeah, I, I just want to add on to what you were asking, Cynthia. You know, if you're talking about Hungary, it's like a bad James Bond villain. These people are telling you the plot in like the first ten minutes. They're literally telling you. I mean, Tucker Carlson spent a week in Hungary, airing his show, his highest rated talk show that is, you know, aired on Fox in America in Hungary, where he did, where he praised Viktor Orban, where we have conservative thinkers now praising Viktor Orban's uh, policies and Hungary and saying, we have to emulate this country, which according to the democracy scale is no longer a democracy, where he has purged the judiciary, where he has clamped down on the free press, and he has clamped down and purged uh, the universities. And like you said, he started off as a small L liberal, but now he has come to power on this type of rampant bigotry, nationalism, racism, and Islamophobia. So they're telling you literally that we believe that America has to be like Viktor Orban's Hungary. They're telling you the plot. And so like Cynthia, people might think I'm an alarmist. I don't think I am. I, like her and others, have been trying to sound the alarm saying, look at what they're doing. They're telling you the plot. January 6th here, the violent insurrection, was a sneak preview, and we're literally living right now through a slow-moving coup. And if they get power again in 2022 or 2024, what makes you think they'll give it back? And when we say this, we are the ones who are seen as extremists. In, in terms of what Cynthia said there as well, about what keeps her up at night, I mean, Cass Mudd, uh, the Guardian US columnist, uh, wrote a piece entitled, Carl Rittenhouse has walked free, now it's open season on protesters. Demonstrators in the US must fear not only police brutality, but right-wing vigilantes. Now, look, I'm not saying this to get out of Thailand where I live. I've been beaten up by Nazis in this country. Um, they didn't have guns because uh, the gun laws are such that we don't have easy access to guns. That doesn't mean we have had, of course, instances of, of terrorism in this country, but generally guns are not very easily accessible that's not the case over the over the atlantic i mean i should say there were other precedents which are disturbing in norway um we had of course uh, the far-right terrorist anders breivik murdered dozens of young socialists i think it's disturbing because that has almost in the kind of pantheon of terrorism it's not really ever discussed as such it's it's, it's just disturbing but what do you what do you think i mean i'll start again with with you Wajahat, and then than Cynthia. I mean, in terms of what, because you you are a heavily armed nation and the right to bear arms is obviously regarded as one of the most basic, fundamental, sacred rights of, of an American. You have lots of extremist groups legally with arms. What does this mean in terms of, because police brutality is one thing, but now, as Cass Mudd points out, there are vigilantes with guns who are going to feel emboldened when it comes to black people, BLM, but more broadly as well, protesters. Everywhere, every every place I've gone in the country, uh, in the world, the, the one question that regardless where I go to, they ask is why is America so obsessed with guns? And it's a very legitimate question because they look at us with horror and fascination that we care more about guns than we care about children who get massacred and in, in school shootings almost on a weekly basis. What this means is that some protests uh, and some protesters, even if they're peaceful, have to be worried, and specifically those who are BLM. Because let's not forget that Donald Trump, when he was given a softball down the middle during the 2020 presidential debates, he said, do you condemn white supremacy? He was asked repeatedly and he didn't. He said, do you condemn Proud Boys? And he told the Proud Boys to, what did he say? Stand back and stand by, right? And they took it as, oh, he's got her back. When it came to Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, which all these white supremacists came uh, and one of them specifically murdered Heather Heyer, anti-racism protester, by running her over. He said, very fine people on both sides. When it comes to these BLM protests, you guys have seen how the police use rubber bullets and tear gas. And they shot even Ali Velshi of MSNBC. And you saw how they cleared out uh, these peaceful, peaceful protesters so Donald Trump could go get his photo up with the Bible. So if you're noticing a trend here, what protests are good? Violent insurrectionists who take over the U.S. Capitol, which results in five people dead, they are the heroes. What, what protests are good? Kyle Rittenhouse coming in and defending with an AR-15 shooting and killing three people. What are the bad protests? Antifa, which, by the way, our FBI said is not an organization, right? What protests are bad? BLM. So what protests are the bad ones? Anything that's asking for diversity, equity, inclusion, that's the threat. And the Kyle Rittenhouse acquittal says that you, too, can pick up your gun and if you feel like you're a victim and you're aggrieved, you can stand your ground and you can clean house and be one of the good old boys. This time, though, you no longer need the hood. 
Cynthia, what do you think? I mean, you already said, obviously, this keeps you up at night, but just just a bit bit more on that. Yeah, I mean, there's several different things here that I think are really concerning. The, the gun issue, of course, we have absurd gun laws in this country, and that, that just has to be said. And, and it's directly tied to the kind of lethal outcomes of extremist violence. So we have seen globally 250% increase in far-right terror over the last five years. So it's happening in a lot of different places, but the U.S. is responsible for about half of the incidents and, and over half of the deaths. I mean, we have a disproportionate problem here because of the guns that we have. And so, and we have seen over the last year and a half, it's not just that we've historically had gun laws that are really permissive. We've seen actual shortages, ammunition shortages. I mean, people are buying guns across the country during the last year and a half uh, at record-breaking paces. I mean, every month kind of precedes the last. And I think that that's, you know, across the spectrum, you now have the, the far left arming up in response to the rising violence on the on the far right. So you just have a heavily armed on-edge population, which which leads to a lot of risk. And, and so I think when you look globally, one of the things, one of the real warning signs I've seen, at least half a dozen organizations have contacted me over the past year, probably more like a dozen, who are normally involved in protecting fragile democracies overseas in peacekeeping and conflict resolution work who have pivoted to work in the US, right? So they see us as a fragile democracy, as a, as a country that needs help. And I think if we were work, if this were happening in any other country, our own USAID would be, would be providing democracy assistance. We would be yeah. providing funds to support the restoration of a country in crisis. But we can't even see it ourselves because we like to think of ourselves as a beacon of democracy. But we're in trouble. Owen, I know I mean, we're just running like, out of time. Yeah. I know we're running out of time, but I, I got this email, which exquisitely explains everything so well. And I, I, I get many hate email like you do, and I tweeted this. And if I may, for your audience, if I could just read it. This is what I got after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Very quickly. Whiteness wins again, you filthy shitskin. And there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it but cry about whitey some more. What a beautiful day to be privileged and white in this world. This sets a precedent in my side of the political aisle. Excessive force to protect yourself against anti-white leftist scum is justified by any means necessary. Emoji smiley face. Well, that, that says it all. And, and just just finally, I know you've already answered this, Wajahat, but we... We were asked this by a commentator. It feels like a comment. It feels like democracy in the US is on the precipice. Is it too late to pull the US back and restore sanity? I mean, Wajahat, you just answered that before. But Cynthia, what do you think in terms of, because obviously we've got the elections coming in 2022, the midterm elections, then the presidential elections. Uh, it is obviously entirely plausible that Trump can win on a minority of the vote. In terms of the laws that exist, you know, in terms of how gerrymandering, how voter laws can be used in the US to suppress particularly people of colour from voting who overwhelmingly vote for the Democratic Party. Where does this, where's this heading? Well, I mean, I think, you know, other countries have come back from the precipice. I don't think that I'm ready to kind of write off the whole, the whole country, or the whole democracy yet. But I think we have to really understand this as a complete moment of crisis. This isn't just red flags and warning signs right now. We're really unraveling as a democracy on on multiple layers, right? Including the heavily armed, including the election interference, including the disinformation, the spread of disinformation and conspiracy theories and the ready use of violence and the and legitimation of it, uh, along with general kind of the broader white supremacist extremism and the defense of a white nation that we've been seeing from the fringes kind of migrate into the mainstream. So, you know, on every measure of, of concerns about democracy, we're there, we're at the, we're at the peak. So, uh, you know, I'm optimistic that we have help now coming from really effective and trained international organizations who who help protect and restore democracy um who've been doing this in 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 fragile places overseas but it's uh it's it's a little bit late like we should have been doing this five ten years ago and uh there's a lot of catch up to do we got to fight for it owen i still have hope but we got to fight for it it's good to end on a slightly hopeful note uh given the circumstances it was a big honor to have both uh, cynthia and wajahat who are absolutely fantastic do follow them on social media and as i say pre-order wajahat's book go back to where you came from which comes out in a couple of months thank you so much to both of you and speak soon thank you thanks Alan. we're very lucky to be joined by two other really fantastic guests who again joining us very very early over in the united states so we have uh firstly we have with us uh patrick blanchfield who is academic and journalist associate at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. And his book, Gunpower, comes out next year with my old publishers, uh, Verso. Do pre-order that as well, because that comes out next year. Hello, hello, hello. How are you doing? 
Oh, I'm not sure I can hear you, Patrick. Your sound has vanished. But we will restore that. We'll get you back. Don't worry. Still muted. But we'll come back one second. While I'm doing that, we've got Benjamin, though. We've got the opposite problem. Oh, no, we've got Benjamin there. We can see Benjamin. <coughs> How are you doing, Benjamin? Good this morning. Benjamin, the brilliant Benjamin Dixon, who hosts his own podcast. He's a writer, including writing columns at my own newspaper, The Guardian newspaper. Great to see you, Benjamin. How are you doing? Good to see you, Darwin. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Is this working now? Okay, good. Yes, Patrick, Fantastic. we can hear you. Sorry about that. You. How are you doing, Patrick? How's it going? Good. It's, it's an honor to be here, and it's a pleasure to be alongside Ben. Hello. Hey, yeah, it's Pat, a real honor to have, to, have, to have both of you here. I want to start just, again, basic reaction. Benjamin, the reaction to the verdict and the aftermath. You know, I'm not surprised. Um, I expected him to get off because he had the full force of the American empire behind him, at least the right wing faction of the American empire. I mean, he had Fox News behind him. He had millions of dollars donated on his behalf. He had a judge who was in. I mean, this is not a victory so much as it is, you know, it, the fix was in from the beginning. Um, that doesn't take away the sting of the truth of what white supremacy is yelling right now. It is yelling that it is loud, it is proud, and it is cavalier with their bigotry. Patrick, go for it. What's your reaction? Yeah, I, I think I want to echo what Benjamin is saying. I think that's absolutely on point. I mean, for, for, I think, I, and this is not incompatible with, with, with that or any of the other reactions from the other guests, but I think part of what's so, um, what makes this both shocking but not surprising or disgusting but not un unanticipated, right, is the way in which the outcome, horrible as it is, is almost secondary to the fact that, like, the real referendum on the system is the fact that the case exists in the first place, mm. right? The fact that this is imaginable, that this is a scenario in which this term, like, <clears throat> self-defense is deployed, just the fact that this is a thing that feels like a variation of so many other cases, and clearly, I think, will prefigure yet more cases going forward, suggests how structural and, and how horrifying this, the reality that we're facing is. Now you're muted, Owen. <laughs> That's me silencing myself. Thankfully, finally, <laughs> finally, they've after years of trying, they've succeeded. Um, no, that's just me silencing myself. Um, Benjamin, uh, in terms of in terms of the the kind of the way the right, as we were talking about this before, the right narrative, not just the. I mean, I was going to say not just the far right, but part of the problem is that the demarcation between what we've seen as a traditional right and the far right has imploded here. Yes. Right. But what's your in terms of the way he's obviously now been seen as this big great leader as a martyr not a martyr because he's obviously uh, seen as a, a vindicated hero. So what does that mean in terms of the the way he's now been used as this great symbol? Well I think it means that white supremacy is pretty pathetic because if Kyle Rittenhouse is the best that you can do, I like our odds. That's really all I have to say about that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Patrick, go on. No, I, I mean, yeah, it is this... Um, it's it's really weird watching people respond to this case with like identifying with him, right? Like, and and as Benjamin points to, like he's not exactly like um, uh, the full flower of Aryan youth, right? <laughs> and I, I think there's something about that which suggests that you know he's a figure of projection. He's a space that people can you know certain people see themselves as occupying, right? Or they write themselves into a certain type of history which he embodies, for better or worse. 
Uh, and I think, yeah, that's that points to, you know, the history here and, and to the broader context. Yeah, I mean, I should, probably shouldn't respond to some of the trolls who comment on YouTube, but people saying, say that to his face, lol, loser. Anyway, <laughs> in terms of, it's just, sorry, I'm to say it like it is. Um, yeah. In terms of, uh, I mean, completely, Patrick, you've written a, a piece, a really brilliant piece, which I strongly recommend that people read. It's in Gorka. Uh, it's entitled, Carl Rittenhouse is an American. Now, what's interesting about this is you put this in a historical context. So let's let's put this, and I'll come on to Benjamin. This historical context, and um, what what looking at the kind of where this is the grand scope of we're talking about white supremacy, but the way the law is codified and other examples. What just flesh out your argument in that piece, Patrick? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much. Um, I mean, like I think the broadest thing I'd say, and I think that that I think is very helpful to keep in mind about this case, but also about debates about all kinds of gun violence in this country and about this sort of the idea of self-defense in general, right, is that there's a kind of tension that, that structures the history and that structures the debates in the sense that a lot of the rhetoric that we uh, have in our founding documents, but also the rhetoric and contemporary discourse is, you know, in the media and in the courts is all about universal rights that are presented as being abstract and sort of dehistorical right, or unhistorical, they're dehistoricized. You have a right to bear arms. Everyone has a right mm. to self-defense, right? It's, it's all in the collective, we the people, and it has this kind of eternal, uh, essential abstraction to it. And that's one half of it. And then the other half of it is the way in which it's always individualized, right, on a case-by-case mm. -case basis in terms of how the courts deal with it, but also in the way a lot of people are individually invested in this uh, abstraction, right? And they have, they, they have a chance to participate in that abstraction. Right. So it's very hard for, to be talking about the, the, the right to self-defense in the abstract without people feeling like, well, are you wanting to take away my individual right to protect myself? And, and what sort of happens in, in, in the gap between this abstract universal rhetoric and the concern with like the individual case or like the fantasy scenarios that some people are afraid of, rightly or wrongly, uh, what falls out is the history. What falls out is the, uh, the particulars of how different groups have had different degrees of access to, you know, having a self to defend, mm. right? And, and, and mm. to the history specifically, right? And, and this is what I think is at stake in the Rittenhouse case. It's vital to understand that as with most of those rights or all of those rights that are articulated in the founding documents in similarly abstract terms, that those historically speaking have their origin in guaranteeing prerogatives for certain sets of people, right? And mm. in the context of a, settler state which the u.s is and remains and now is a settler empire that means that the capacity of an individual to defend themselves is tethered to their participation in the project of extracting certain resources imposing dominance on certain populations and literally just doing ethnic cleansing and genocide oh. right so, so historically speaking that abstract right for everyone to quote unquote defend themselves really sort of post facto just ratifies the prerogative of settlers to kill and impose dominance on people who oppose them, right? And that, I think, mutatis mutandis is the principle that's taken in the Rittenhouse thing. We could, we could break this down more, right, in the sense like, you know, slaves couldn't legally defend themselves for, <laughs> for the entirety of the institution of slavery. Uh, women couldn't legally defend themselves even against their husbands. They could only defend themselves against other men by invoking their husband's right to own them as property, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and we can move this forward, too, to look at how actual self-defense cases play out in the contemporary moment, right? Where if, if you are a, a white person and you kill a black person in a stand your ground or justifiable homicide scenario, like, that is much more likely to be ruled self-defense and vice versa. So these abstractions are a kind of trap, right? And once we think about that history, like, this is the fact that this term self-defense, which seems so universal, seems so accessible, seems so obvious, it, it actually endorses entire own, like an entire logic of who gets to be a self mm -hmm. and like whiteness as a property, but also who gets to have property in a highly unequal society where violence is distributed unequally. Yeah, Benjamin, great place, by the way, Benjamin. Whew, I am, uh, first of all, Patrick, Wow, man, thank you for that. I was hanging on to every word and it leads me, everything that you said leads me to this. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse is just George W. Bush. Um, did not George W. Bush create a scenario for us to be terrified of and then subsequently killed how many Iraqis? And then, oops, there were no weapons of mass destruction. So on a micro level, the fantasies are very um, critical to the sustaining of the male, especially the white male ego, when no other part of their life is supreme, they need that fantasy. 
we could extrapolate from the micro to the macro. You got George W. Bush and the empire in, the, in general. Um, in the driver's seat asks, since it's been brought up a lot in the comments, I'd love to hear thoughts about how rioting is an acceptable form of protest, which it is. I mean, obviously, this was described famously as Martin Luther King, the cry of the unheard, the riots mm. of the time. Uh, and it's interesting because, of course, Martin Luther King now is valorized and sainted at the time was uh, portrayed by uh, mainstream American commentators and politicians. Is I think it was this famous cartoon of him uh, lighting a match and throwing it at, you know, some Tinder and that, you know, he was this person who was whipping up uh, violence yeah. and disorder yeah. uh, through his rhetoric. Uh, I mean, so what do you think about that, Benjamin, in terms of the way we we talk about, you know, the unrest that follows, for example, the shootings, the killings, the murder of, of black men by, of black people by the police and the way that's then framed? You know, it's just the simple fact that this country regards property over life except for when they can own your life as property, then, you know, we see American history unfold. That said, um, I, I, I really believe that this country has a dilemma on its hand in terms of how it sees itself. And your last guest really spoke to it. I think it is a crisis um, intersecting right on what you just asked, Owen. It is a crisis that we have to honestly be truthful about. And I, it's just so sobering to really hear some of those truths. You played a clip from Jason Johnson earlier um, to hear those kind of truths being spoken on mainstream media. Um, and I hate to have pivoted that way, but I think that is a very critical component of this. Patrick, in terms of, yeah, go for it. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I just, I just want to echo that and do it and just historicize this a little bit, right? We hear these terms like, like looting, right? I mean, if, you, if you, anyone's familiar with any of the, the several recently very good popular histories of like the, the, the East English, uh, the, the East India Company that have come out in the past several years, I think Dalrymple's book, right? We get the word looting in English via colonial, hmm. like rapping and extraction from South India, right? Looting is, is the process of colonially taking things from people. Right. Which we now put upon the oppressed as a thing that they do under circumstances, which are generally not ones in which those that are judging them find themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. By which I mean, like the question of like, well, is rioting an acceptable form of protest? It's sort of absurd to me in the sense that it's like people are desperate. People are disenfranchised and people are the objects of both state violence and paramilitary violence. Right. With the blessing mm -hmm. of the state. Of course, they will resist. People have always resisted. People will be desperate. Their options are limited. Right. Why exactly we put the, the the onus of moral purity on them to somehow like edifyingly suffer nonviolence. Mm. It, it, it's, it's an absurd supererogatory demand. It's, it's sort of perverse. And I think the the question and then you can map this onto self-defense, too. Right. Like there is some point at which like and this is this gets that paradox between the universal and the particular. When you put people in desperate circumstances why would we be surprised that they resort to violence? Particularly if we make violence a live option for them. But what we do in this country very often, much in the same way it's like cops beat the hell out of people while yelling, stopping, resisting, is we put people in positions where they have no choice but to come into contact with authorities, mm. right? That blame them for their desperation and invoke the resistance as the reason why they're being beaten in the first place. Yes. Exactly. Very well put. I mean, Benjamin, in terms of We've obviously had much discussion about the racist violence unleashed by the official law enforcement agencies of the United States. But we can see now right-wing vigilantes who are triumphalist in the aftermath of this verdict. What does this now mean in terms of the sorts of, I mean, again, again, what we talked before about the demarcation collapsing between the so-called yes. traditional right and the far right, but also law enforcement agencies and these vigilantes because we saw how the police celebrated what Rittenhouse did. So what does that mean in terms of that, you know, the, the, not just fear from the police in terms of their violence, but also these far-right vigilantes and the blurring of the distinction between the two? Um, Owen, you, you're walking me into something that's going to get me in trouble. But I, at this point, I don't think there should be a single white conservative police officer in a city that is predominantly or closely predominantly black or minority because we put this 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 we absolve these officers 
of their ideologies and their bigotries, their deeply held philosophies that they've grown up with since their childhood. And we absolve them because we put a badge on them. No, they celebrated Kyle Rittenhouse, which means when your neighbor decides to shoot you, they're going to high five your neighbor. So why should they be protecting and serving our neighborhoods when they are clearly a threat to us? Patrick, what do you think about that? that again, that, that issue of the demarcation and and the violence of private actors, the blended enterprises. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like this is another one of these things to think about in terms of U the U.S.'s settler history, right? Like we have this kind of, whether it's civics class or popular media, we kind of have this initial, we have this, this, this lingering, constantly reinforced attachment to the idea that, well, they're the, there's the police, which are the people with badges and the uniforms, and they're somehow they're accountable to the state or whatever. And then there are private sector vigilantes who are, you know, roaming the streets with guns. And, and the truth of the matter is, like, historically speaking, uh, you know, in a settler country where you have a minority settler population claiming ever more resources to extract value and subjugate people, you have a kind of like you dem that demands a flexibility from individual settlers and groups of settlers that really blurs that boundary between professional policing, right, and participation in like lynch mobs, right, or white citizens councils or the Klan or any of the numerous other groups, right? And I think that that combined with this ethos of militarism results in these situations where hell, I mean, if you watch the TV now and you see some of the people who are responding to the protests, whether they be National Guard or local like people in Kenosha or, you know, people, commuter protesters, <laughs> counter protesters like Mr. Rittenhouse, like you, you, they're all wearing kind of the same uniforms. They have all got the same sort of looking guns. I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse's AR-15 is a Smith & Wesson M&P-15. M&P stands for military and police, right? So there's a way in which like, all these people are together ensuring the perpetuation of a certain social order, right? And if you look at, at, at the history of how and, and the current, you know, reality of how these communities are policed, these places where, you know, the cops are, again, disproportionately killing people where the cops themselves don't live, those communities are sites of extraction, right? Mm -hmm. Entire police departments make tons of money on asset forfeiture, on stopping people for, for, for minor violations, on literally enforcing outstanding warrants that are, are, are sent by, like, private debt collectors, et cetera. That's it. These are basically internal colonies. And there's a lot of people in this country who think that that's okay. And that whether or not the people doing sort of the enforcing or quote unquote defending themselves by inserting themselves with guns into those spaces have badges or not, that's secondary to the fact that it's about maintaining that order of extraction and subjugation. That's right. In terms of, I mean, obviously we've got midterm elections in 2022, the presidential election 2024, whether or not Trump stands or who knows, someone even more dangerous in some ways is the flag bearer. And the fact that the voting system being what it is, the systematic attempts to rig it, uh, that a Trump-like figure can win, obviously, with a minority of the popular vote. What does this mean in terms of in terms of where this is, if if the Republicans are to retake power in 2022 and 2024 and the nature of the Republican Party and what you think about the mainstream Democratic Party's attempt to resist <laughs> or lack thereof uh, the direction of the Republican Party. What do you think, Benjamin? Uh, well, Owen, I think it, now that, that directly connects to the obliteration of the distinction, the demarcation between the right and the far right in this country, because... I don't think we have until 2022 to resolve this. The farthest right faction, almost on the face of the planet, based on what uh, one of your last guests was saying, um, is in power. And they are moving through a slow coup. They've test they stress tested the system. Um, they know exactly how to break it the next time and make sure that this country never transforms from being that settler colonial state that will extract everything from you down to the, your life, all for the sheer protection of the empire. That is what is on the ballot in 2022. But because Republicans have done so much undermining us on every state level, legislatures across the country, Republican legislatures have made it more difficult for people to vote, as you stated in your opening monologue. Here we are with the proposition of we have a very short window to get this accomplished. We must defeat these people before 2022, because if they get in power, they are going for everything. They're going for the whole ball game here, Owen. What do you think, Patrick, in terms of that, in terms of the nature of the GOP and yeah. what that would mean if they were to return to power? I, I mean, I think they're entirely copacetic with running a white minority rule state. 
I mean, they always have been. Uh, but I think that that right now is 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 really that's that's clearly what they're attempting to do. And I think there's a certain. I think we should we should be explicit too. The mainstream U.S. media really kind of it, it, with a type of both sidesism that perpetuates this, right? And 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 and, and steadily slides us to this. And we may recall, in fact, I think it was just uh, two, in the run up to 2008, I believe, the Obama election. There was a giant story that made all the rounds on Drudge and Fox, etc., of how one new Black Panther with a billy club with a little truncheon standing just outside a voting station, I think in Chicago, was the sign, was intimidation, mm-hmm. was a hate crime, was democracy itself. And it was just some dude walking around with a stick, right? Now we have open carriers, we have Kyle Rittenhouse, we have like street battles being undertaken with the, with the blessing apparently of authorities who are kettling yeah. people and arresting them, all this shit, sorry. Uh, to, to imagine that I certainly don't think, well, let's just say the discourse as such is going to flatten it such that even when the state is brought to bear, even when the Republican Party is bringing to bear all the resources it can to deploy methods, extra legal or legal, right, to ensure a type of minority rule that will always be told, well, actually, but there were there are some Antifa out there who break things and perhaps even some of them have guns, etc. Like there's going to be this kind of movement and where that goes and why I think this is why I think the Democratic Party's real problem is like, and I think it's a structural problem. I don't know if it can be overcome. Is an attachment to procedures over and against outcomes, right? There's mm-hmm. a kind of formalist proceduralism, right? And this is evident in Joe Biden's statement about like, well, we ha- the jury system works. We have to respect the outcome of Rittenhouse. Well, the jury system also delivers a situation in which, again, there is a dramatic <coughs> racial disparity between how stand your ground and self defense cases are actually dealt with in this country. The jury system also helps produce, you know, that, that co-signs our system of mass incarceration. The fact that these procedures are being followed on some level, even as the procedures are being whittled away, is not necessarily a sign of any type of moral validity. And just to say one last thing about this, there are other examples of states where there retain certain types of institutional legitimacy, even as the, the fig leaf over naked racialized force disintegrates. And I think here I've spent a lot of time reading actually court cases from uh, the period of Rhodesian independence, right? Talk about another settler state, which in its founding documents, Ian Smith literally likes to name check Thomas Jefferson. They saw themselves as continuing that tradition. And that Supreme Court was constantly litigating. Well, yes, sure. Everyone has rights under the law, but these are exceptional circumstances. They're communists, etc. And so in other words, we, a pure democratic formalism, whether guaranteed by the DNC or otherwise, is entirely compatible with an apartheid state. And, you know, that requires a supplement of both like the, the police and uh, self-delegating people to enforce it. And we, we have those ingredients here. I mean, just finally, just a couple of questions. Just finally, uh, one is gruesome, but I suppose it is on the minds of lots of people. So Tad Cantwell, it's very interesting. Oh, sorry. Yeah, in the wrong one. Some have predicted, this is Tad Cantwell, some have predicted new American Civil War. <laughs> what a thing to have to, I mean, it's the worst timeline. Do the panel think that the France, the US armed forces would split or get mostly behind a coup? What a question to ask. Um, But that is absolutely, it's a valid question. And what do you think the strategy for those on the left should be in the face of right radicalization and often the inability or just lack of willingness of many, much of the mainstream Democratic Party to put up a fight against the is radicalized right formation. So what do you think about those two things, Ben? I understand the the kind of penchant, and forgive me, my camera. Uh, yeah, I don't is, hold on. Is, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, don't carry on. Was, okay. No, uh, carry on. So, so I, I, I understand the fear and the idea that we could potentially be going into a civil war, but I think that kind of misconstrues where we really are on the timeline. You said we're in the worst timeline. We are. You know, this is the... This is the power structure that is already here. Uh, the Proud Boys are out there trying to protect the power structure that is already here. We are sending out an SOS. We are survivors. We're almost, especially uh, 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 people of the diaspora. Uh, we weren't brought here. We were brought here through force. Like this is a, a an SOS. We have the opportunity to actually change the course of this settler state. And this is why white supremacy is losing its mind, which is why I said what I said. If Kyle Rittenhouse is your hero, then no, you are in decline. And all we have to do is just keep living. And which is why I think they don't care about climate change, because I think they're saying to us, if they can't have America, well, no one can have this planet. That's kind of the cards that they're playing with. 
Patrick, what do you think about obviously the question and then also strategy, what what the left should be doing in this circumstance? Yeah, I just want to, that's a hard thing. I think what Benjamin just said, and it, I think it's like, there is like a very strong kind of like family annihilator death drive energy here, right? Right, right. If, if we're not in control, then, there, then there's nothing going to be left, right? It's, it's the same logic, right? You know, lots lots of people, I'm thinking of the work of Jonathan Metzl, who's a psychiatrist and sociologist who's do- documented this. There are lots of people who in the wake of the Ferguson protests, I think lots of little, middle-aged white men who buy guns to protect themselves against, you know, Antifa protesters coming out to their subdivisions. And what do they do with those guns? Ultimately, they just kill themselves and their families, mm. right? It, 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 like, like that cold, dead hands line that you hear sometimes in gun debates, that's not just a threat, that's sometimes a suicide battle. And like a lot of people would rather be, you know, attached to a failing settler state than they would, you know, consider anything different at all. Uh, and I think what that means, though, in terms of like where we're possibly going, I, I wonder the question of what it means. Like, should we be thinking about a civil war? What a civil war looks like for a lot of people? I think when they ask that, they just mean like on the one hand, they have this mental image of like blues versus grays at hmm. like Gettysburg or some of these set piece battles. They don't think about like bleeding Kansas, neighbors killing neighbors, which, you know, is hundreds of thousands of dead. It's really up to our casualty count for the war. But also like to talk about a civil war requires as contrast, some sort of notion of functioning civil society and civil hmm. peace. Right. Hmm. And I'm not really sure that a situation in which this type of vigilantism has the blessing of law and also police regularly extrajudicially kill people at a rate with no comparison anywhere else in the developed world really constitutes much of a civil society to begin with. Mm. Right. So it, it, instead of waiting for, you know, Gettysburg 2.0, we could just talk about the fact that there are the police do kill people all the time. There are disappearances. There's a whole lot of ongoing churn of liquidation and violence, which is political, but which doesn't get marked as political because we have these fictions about process and, and, mm. and, and the like. In terms of strategy, I mean, I, I don't know. I, my ministry isn't telling people what to do, but I do think like people should be, oh, people shouldn't fall into the trap of like, I think throwing in our lot with the police, like it's not necessarily a good thing. I don't really think like the police are going to vindicate these, or, or, or offer a solution here, right? Like the police, the police are the ones who threw Kyle Rittenhouse bottles of water. Kyle Rittenhouse wanted to become a cop, right? I, I think you have, you need to have networks of mutual aid of people that are, caring for one another that are showing up on a grassroots level are not relying on the media for their pri- or the mainstream media for their primary sources of information that are doing things like, you know, to the extent to which electoral solutions are there. I mean, clearly there are some judges in this country who probably shouldn't be adjudicating these cases and need hmm. to be voted out. Right. right? The, the gerrymandering needs to be undone. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff that can affect gun violence. It's not gun control, which I think we should pursue because gun control is very much co-opted by a certain type of proceduralist cop centric, you know, policy trajectory. But like, I think just trying not to trying to maintain a very difficult balance between feeling heartbroken and traumatized and despair and, realizing that there are other people that feel that same way and that together we can think of solutions. I think that's the key thing. You've both been absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate it. My internet's gone a bit ropey, so I probably should just leave it there just before that collapses entirely. I'm not actually at home. I'm in the Portuguese countryside, so why not? But, but the internet's carried us this far. I think that's as far as it will take us. You've both been so brilliant and so uh, insightful. Do follow both Benjamin Dixon on, if you look up Benjamin Dixon, you'll find him on Twitter very easily. And also Patrick, whose book, Patrick Blanchfield, whose book, Gunpower, comes out next year. So do get that. But that has been so fascinating, perceptive and insightful. So we really, really appreciate it. So thank you to both of you. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks again. And thanks for getting up so early. Sorry, they got up so early. So really appreciate it. Hope you catch up on some rest. Uh, that was fascinating. Very educational. We went through a lot, obviously, the direct implications of the verdict, but where this, what this means to the American Republic, um, where this is heading, which is grim. And we'll have many shows to come, I think, documenting uh, this ugly radicalization, potentially paving the way for a return to power by of a Republican Party that is more radicalized than that, which has even been in power before um so we'll have lots of analysis um thank you everyone who's supported the show uh, in the driver's seat david Barata, tad campwell and others uh we'll go through that properly and uh do if you're watching this on youtube do click on the link press like uh leave a comment as well that's good for the the algorithm and subscribe 
Um, and also subscribe to our podcast. Uh, you can support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. That's what keeps the show on the road, the team and the documentaries that we do. Uh, we've got some, uh, we've got an interview coming up or two interviews coming up, uh, a joint interview with the new leaders of the Green Party in England and Wales. Uh, they're doing very well in some polls, uh, partly because of disillusionment with the Labour Party. But I'm interested in the fact that, in a sense, they, they've not been, for my eye, that visible. Have they made much of an impact in terms of trying to win over those disillusioned with the direction of travel of the British Labour Party? So what what's their pitch these days, the Green Party? What are they trying to do? Um, I do think it's important we do interview them because when UKIP were doing... Uh, you know, weren't gaining in the polls or getting 10% in the polls, which Green Party get in some polls. Obviously, they got wall-to-wall coverage and Nigel Farage was never off the BBC, not least question time. So we're doing our job by actually giving a platform to the Green Party where we will put questions to them. So do join us next week for that. We'll be live next Sunday. I think I am going to Snowdonia um, next Sunday. Uh, so we'll work out how we do that. But I think we'll still be live at 12 o'clock next Sunday, but we'll see how it goes. We've got loads of documentaries coming, thanks to your support. But again, thank you so much to our fantastic guests. Uh, I hope everyone's having a restful Sunday. Uh, lots of love, and I will see you all very, very soon. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you found that educational, interesting, engaging, and all sorts of other things. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. You keep doing the podcast and the channel uh, with our incredible team's work, or use the support function in the description. And do subscribe and leave us a review, please. Some stars, any of those things. Um, but otherwise, lots of love. Hope you're well. Speak to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.